Welcome, listener. Today on the show, we're going to cover some creepy American towns, and the lore surrounding them is going to be all-encompassing. So it's going to alternate between high strangeness, real-world accounts, dark history, to the just plain strange. So let's begin, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. This is, this is the way. This is the way. Colma, located in California. Colma has the unofficial names of the City of Souls, the City of the Silent, or the City of the Dead, and this town has earned these macabre nicknames for a good reason. The living are vastly outnumbered by the dead there. Colma is roughly, it's not that big of a town, but it nonetheless has an astonishing 17 cemeteries. Cemeteries require a lot of upkeep. And in San Francisco, you'll notice that there are not very many there, or close by the city, despite the dense population. Many of the dead in Colma originated in Frisco, but as the city grew and politics made it harder and harder to maintain and organize the graves, around 2 million corpses were transported from San Francisco to Colma. There are 1,000 graves for every one person that lives there. Only about 1,500 living people actually populate this creepy town. So with the inability to maintain the graves while in San Francisco, crime concerning cemeteries just got to be too much. Not only crime, but vagrancy, vandalization, and darker things too. Like grave robbing and necros, occultists performing rituals, and those with mental illness became a plague of these crumbling cemeteries. A resting place for the dead became deadly to the living. I mean, you wouldn't want to visit your deceased loved one at their grave if there was a chance that you wouldn't be making it out, right? And while San Francisco is well known for its heavy crime rate, this all was getting to be too much for the the entire state. In 1906, a massive earthquake destroyed much of the city, and thousands of people were killed. At this point, the cemeteries in the city were basically overflowing with a little oversight. Graves were being used, reused, and reused again, and let's just say that the dead were literally piling up. But it still took until 1914 until enough was enough. The town of Colma was explicitly built to counter this growing issue. San Francisco sent out a notice that all graveyards were being evicted, and families who had loved ones in the cemeteries had to pay a fee to have the grave transported, along with the tombstone and any other aspects or unique elaborations on the graves. But a lot of the dead in San Francisco were still not claimed. They were maybe originally from another state or an immigrant family and whatnot, and no one was around to claim them. A lot had no family in San Francisco at all, much less California. And these corpses were pretty much just discarded into mass graves, and their tombstones were sold for building materials or new tombstone material to cemetery businesses. And this was a lot of bodies. People cut corners trying to get this grim work done and over with. Land in San Francisco was becoming such a premium that, with its constant growth, buildings and businesses were often built right on top of these areas where the cemeteries were once located. Many corpses were left behind or shoved to the side for more profit or ease of the movers, and to this day, San Franciscans find corpses under their houses or buildings when renovating property. The mass excavation of these graves were shoddy, to say the least. 
but the mass majority of the dead found their new home in Colma. Now, with such a vast amount of dead who were distributed and moved from their original resting place, it's no wonder that lots of paranormal accounts surround this creepy town. Paranormal investigators regularly record ominous EVPs, with most saying lots of the cemeteries have insanely creepy vibes. Colma is a very popular spot for ghost hunters, and with the town's bizarre history, I can totally see why. But what about you? Would you like to live in a graveyard town? Colorado City, Arizona Apparently, if you come to Colorado City, Arizona, and are not known by the locals, a bunch of white SUVs will show up and start following you around. Formerly known as Short Creek, Colorado City was established in 1913, so it's pretty old. As one begins to drive through the town, it doesn't take too long for people to get creeped out from all the half-built compounds and buildings everywhere. The residents allegedly just stop whatever they're doing and stare at you as you go by, which is always welcoming and not creepy at all. And um, most outsiders feel like they're being watched as they go through the town. Many have said that the experience is like driving through the territory of a mysterious cult, and they wouldn't be too far off. Some say that the place is ran by polygamous Mormon outcasts that are highly incestuous, pedophilic, and inbred, which gives me a creepy, the hills have eyes kind of mental picture. And if you research the history surrounding Colorado City, you'd notice that it's not an inaccurate description of the town. It all sounds kind of like an X-Files episode or something. Now, a lot of slander could be slung here, and people who live in the surrounding area say the place is getting better, but there's still a creepiness about this town nonetheless. The legacy of Colorado City revolves around a splinter group of Mormons and their leader, Warren Jeffs, who's quoted as saying, You can't go to heaven and be a god unless you have more than one wife. What? So, it's not my thing to defame any religion because, in fact, I have reverence for them all. But this cultish aspect of the people in this town is what's behind all the rumors and legends. However, Jeffs was convicted as a sexual predator, stating he did all the messed up stuff he did because God ordered him to. Just as many villains throughout history have done to justify their evil deeds, not only God, but any of them, they always use these, this higher stance of morality to justify their evil. I don't think I have to say most Mormons are good people. They are. But there are splinter groups in all religions that believe some pretty weird stuff. In 2004, Warren Jeffs kicked 20 men out of the town and gave their wives and kids to other men. The reason he did this, these men claim, is for simply disagreeing with the man. See, this is one of the greatest ways to spot a cult and not a spiritual group or practice or tradition. If it revolves around a figurehead and what they say only, it's a cult. If it's a group of people making decisions and organizing, you are always much safer from accidentally joining something that ends up being culty. If it wasn't a cult, Jeffs would have never had the ability to do something like this, and it wasn't the first time he'd done it either. From 2001 to 2006, around 400 men were exiled by Jeffs, with their wives and children suffering the same fate, just being passed off to other men in the town. Some of these men were kicked out for really dumb stuff too, like dating a girl without Jeffs' permission. Jeffs was eventually put on the FBI's most wanted list and captured in 2006. Men in the town are expected to have at least three wives in order to reach the highest form of salvation, and the wives are to conduct themselves in subservience to the men. This is obviously hard to keep up with the men-to-women ratio, and some men have been forced to leave town. But that's just to keep or to make sure that the older, more powerful, and influential men have more wives than the younger men. But they also have other ways to make sure that there's enough women 
the lost ones or the lost boys are usually men who are exiled from the church for such crimes as listening to rock music. But you can imagine that it gets pretty tyrannical. Since these young men were so sheltered and taught a version of reality that is unhelpful to life outside of their creepy little town, most end up homeless in surrounding cities. Some people in Colorado City have had such issues with the state and child safety services due to pedophilia and forced marriage. They obviously hate anything federal or the like, but have an equal distaste for outsiders. Hence why people who travel there often leave shortly after entering the town. And it's just a pretty shitty place to live if you're female. Hopefully, people who say that the town is getting better are genuine because religious laws mostly protect them. Moving on takes us to eastern Texas, in the small town of Jefferson. For multiple reasons, this place is apparently a paranormal hotspot, and ghost hunters have had a field day here. The town has seen a decent amount of Texas history and a lot of occurrences that could lead to the creations of lost souls. Native Americans in the area were hunter-gatherers for thousands of years before encountering Europeans, but were not pushed off the land in warfare as you might think. The natives were basically wiped out because of their lack of immunity to the settlers' diseases. But the Spanish and Mexicans would eventually lose the land to what would become Texas. In 1836, the Texans formed their first Congress. They joined the secession from the Union, and the town of Jefferson saw some action during the war because of the tactical value of the area and saw a series of conflicts. But most of the deaths were actually from diseases. However, the Civil War did take a bloody toll on this town that didn't end immediately after the Union victory. It was still the Wild West after all, and crime often went unpunished. In any case, you can see the importance of this town historically, and the many deaths associated with the land that Jefferson resides on. It played a significant role in the Texas Revolution, the Civil War, and a boon in industrial growth in the area. And there's still tons of other fascinating things about Jefferson outside of this weird stuff. But it's most famous in many circles for its sheer amount of high strangeness that occurs there. Some even like to say that it's the most haunted town in Texas. But that's up for debate. There's no doubt though that this creepy town has a long history of extreme violence. A few spots in particular put this town on this list though. And one of them is the notorious Jefferson Hotel which may just have the highest amount of recorded paranormal activity in the eastern part of the state. But the Grove is also said to be the most haunted place in the town. In any case, the hotel is pretty jarring. It's seen its fair share of violence and suffering. Once being a brothel, the hotel allegedly has many entities trapped within its walls. Horror fans out there might be pretty entertained by Jefferson Hotel having a legit Book of the Dead which is a book that guests who stay at the hotel are welcome to add to if they have any creepy experiences during their stay. And this book is pretty damn detailed and compelling. It's been filled with a whole bunch of encounters over the years. One such spirit is Judy, who is believed to be a sex worker that was murdered in the hotel. However, Judy is not aggressive and usually just writes her name on mirrors after they get steamy from showers. But... Then there's also the Vanishing Man, who's encountered as a full-on apparition before disappearing quickly after being seen. There's also Tall Man, who stands at the foot of guest beds in a long coat and big boots, and has been seen by many guests during the dead of night. They wake up to the frightful apparition staring at them in the darkness, which is pretty freaky to think about. Many people have seen apparently the same blonde woman in room 14, but she's not frightening. Just a typical apparition of a woman. Still creepy though. And then there's the Excelsior House, which is yet another creepy hotel there that's said to be pretty haunted. And it's older than the Jefferson too, being established in the 1850s and is the oldest hotel in eastern Texas. Supposedly well-known historical figures haunt this hotel, like the previously mentioned Ulysses S. Grant from Civil War fame. Oscar Wilde, among many more local legends. The Excelsior Hotel is allegedly even the inspiration for Steven Spielberg's 
Poltergeist movie after the famous director stayed at the paranormal hotspot, which seems like in a kind of similar to how The Shining got its inspiration. And according to this narrative, Spielberg woke up to the apparition of a young boy at the foot of his bed, just looking at him in silence. And then after a while of just staring, the boy asked the director if he was ready to eat. In 1877, a Rothschild forced his lover, Diamond Bessie, to be a prostitute at the hotel. Or I guess I should say that it's rumor. I should just say allegedly. It's not confirmed. But the story goes, Rothschild took her on a picnic, to which she never returned. And Bessie was found a week later. She had been murdered by a fatal shot to the head. Rothschild had a trial, but in the end he got away with the murder. In any case, Diamond Bessie is one of the most seen apparitions at the hotel. But there's a ton more, including poltergeist-like activity and phantom smells like perfume and people have even seen cigar smoke manifest without anyone around. But the smell legitimately is just <laughs> as if somebody was right there smoking a cigar. One of the most occurring phenomena at the hotel is simply sheets being pulled off people at night. But the ghosts are pretty creepy. The apparition of a woman shrouded in all black walks the hotel while holding a child in her arms tightly. And if close to anyone or anyone gets close to her, she clutches it even tighter. In the hallways and corridors, people have seen a man with no head. And three rooms in particular have the highest amount of paranormal activity occur. And one of these three rooms has very specific residual haunting the rocking chair in the room goes back and forth with no one in sight, and the door slams shut, sometimes right in people's faces. Many guests get so freaked out, either by their own mind, that they can't even stay a single whole night. And then there's the Grove, the other supposedly most haunted place in this town as well as supposedly one of the most haunted places in all of Texas. But don't be fooled by its classic 1800s elegant architecture, as well as its well-kept and all-around beautiful appearance. Because according to the residents of Jefferson, there's some real darkness in the home. The ghost stories surrounding the grove date back to the late 1800s, and most people who have attempted to live there don't last long because of all the bumps in the night. Though in modern times it is a private residence and even has people living there who are more than willing to give public tours of the haunted house during dedicated times. Some of the ghosts that haunt the location are a man in the garden, an old man with a long white beard, a lady in a white dress, a trickster spirit, and a demonic type entity in the basement. The owner says that the veil is thinner in the area the house is located and EVPs have been captured in the house many times. The lady in white walks through the house and then levitates up and goes through the wall, most likely following a trajectory that she took in life that was a part of the original design of the house but is no longer present. The lady in white is a confirmed residual haunting and doesn't do anything other than follow its path. All in all, there's some paranormal lore associated with all the buildings in this town. Most of the buildings in this town. And it even has an official ghost walk that you can sign up for if you visit. It takes place every Friday and Saturday, so if you live in Texas, go check that out and tell me what's up. And this historically important creepy town has an incredibly dark history that was really fun to research. $30 off weed with code PODCAST? Did someone say $30 off weed with code PODCAST? Amuse delivers over 500 high-quality cannabis products from the Bay Area brands you love at everyday low prices. You can also rest assured that everything will be up to your high standards. So what are you waiting for? Start shopping now at Amuse.com. Use promo code PODCAST to save 30 bucks off your next order. That's A-M-U-S-E dot com. <laughs> You know those cigarette butts that you see every day? They're made of microplastics and they line our streets and waterways. On California beaches, they're the number one plastic you'll find. Over 35 years, cleanups have collected millions combined. But no matter where you see them, they're all getting smaller, eventually leaching into our food, our air, 
or water. The tobacco industry's to blame for all of the harm that they do. For the harm to the people we love, and the harm to you too. Learn more at undo.org. Most people don't really think about weird stuff concerning Wisconsin or the paranormal, but they'd be wrong. There's a lot of documented high strangeness all across the state, and Broadhead has its fair share of urban legends and dark history. Originally built in 1868, complete with an upstairs hotel, the Flynn Steakhouse is currently closed to the public, and for good reason, because locals say it's haunted. Originally called the Harris House, Tragedy would forever taint this once busy location. Shortly after its creation in the 1800s, a little girl named Mary burned to death in the building and is said to be responsible for apparitions of misty white formations that wander throughout the area. Not too much is known about Mary or the other entity that manifests here, a woman in a white dress. But lots of high strangeness beyond ghostly manifestations have occurred here as well such as gas oven stovetops turning on without anyone around, a phantom piano playing, even though no such instrument is in the facility, and objects levitating. There's also a tourist attraction called the Screamatorium in town. The old middle school in Broadhead, abandoned and empty for years, eventually got made into a haunted house for entertainment. What's funny though is... The building didn't really even have any paranormal accounts associated with it prior to the screamatorium, but after it was opened, the employees quickly began to experience some pretty weird stuff. There have never been any macabre occurrences reported to have gone down here. There's only one death confirmed on the property, and it was a transient that actually died just outside the building, not inside of it. So many find it strange that the massive structure could have paranormal activity, chalking it up to the building absorbing all the energy of all the kids from back in the day, creating some kind of unique residual haunting. When visited by paranormal investigators, they encounter a whole bunch of scary phenomena. The screamatorium employees have talked about dolls being moved, or the attraction's props appearing where they shouldn't or items in general moving around the old school in ways that they should not. And all of these accounts have attracted the attention of many paranormal investigators. They've used a ghost box, EVP, and pretty much confirmed the site to be very much haunted utilizing their equipment. One particular group of investigators even had a board thrown at them that was propping up a door, and these investigators even claimed to talk to intelligent spirits. Like I said, Many conclude that this is a unique residual haunting. But then again, residual hauntings can't throw stuff at you. Maybe I'm assuming a little bit too much here though. Suppose you don't know what I'm talking about. So paranormal investigators use the term residual haunting to describe a specific category of haunting that you can't interact with and really isn't even self-aware. It's just basically on repeat, analogous to playing a video. It's not an active spirit that can influence the material world or even really be aware of what's outside their loop. But let's move on to Hell's Playground. This playground in Broadhead is not somewhere that you'd ever want to take your kid. Allegedly, it's the site where three murders took place, an adult and two children. As the story goes, a man with severe mental illness came across the group at night and committed the horrendous crime, leaving a tide of gore in his wake. People who go to Hell's Playground at night have reported hearing children playing, mainly on swings, but skittering laughter from no visible source crisscrossing throughout the property only to end in a sudden scream is also a common occurrence. People who go to Hell's Playground are also often suddenly startled from a phantom growl that comes out of nowhere with no sign of anything that could have produced it. Multiple people have reported hearing children's chanting, and pretty much, most people who go to Hell's Playground at night get a really creepy vibe and don't often stay long. Broadhead also has a famous haunted bridge stalked by a classic lady in white apparition who was brutally murdered by two men and now eternally roams the area. However, it is mainly associated with the bridge, even though it has been seen around. 
and those who walk the bridge at night may just experience something otherworldly because she's described as being quite aggressive in accounts. But she is kind of a unique lady in white because she doesn't get in the car or ask for a ride like most lady in white ghosts do. And as far as I could find, she's never caused someone's death. Honestly though, Broadhead is pretty congested with paranormal activity and odd phenomena is reported throughout the town, not just these landmarks. But then again, the people of Broadhead can be pretty creepy too, because the town has one of the highest populations of uh, ratios to meth addiction in the country, and it's really not the best place to go for people with a fragile constitution, or to raise a family, or to just vacation or visit or go... Just don't go there. But... At least you don't have to worry about bioterrorism, like the people in the next creepy town. Antelope, Oregon has a dark place in American history by being known as the first bioterrorism that ever took place on American soil. And it's also a cautionary tale of good intentioned spiritual movements going off the rails and transforming into a dark parody of itself. In the 1970s, a guru named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh better known as Osho, created a new age cult that was basically about the same stuff as uh, as like the hippie movement or the new age love and light kind of stuff. A sex cult is also a valid label for them in their later incarnation. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking down on new age stuff. It's all good. But this cult was far from high vibrations, at least later on in its existence. It did start out pretty chill though. The movement seemed to be doing great until they pissed off the Indian government and earned their tender attentions. However, falling out of favor with their homeland's government was just the start of a series of ups and downs concerning the group's fortunes. In 1981, Osho decided to take his spiritual movement to America and settle in the tiny town of Antelope in the state of Oregon. And when I say tiny, I do mean tiny. So it seemed like a perfect location to have privacy for their little cult and build their own little settlement. All of his followers said it would become a paradise and morale was high once again. But this wasn't all love and light, equality, enlightenment kind of stuff. Because to join them, you had to donate everything you owned to Osho, including your bank account and uh, pretty much live in poverty with uh, weird robes being the only clothes you get to wear from that point on, and just basically being a weirdo. And all this while Osho had a collection of 19 expensive Rolls Royces. He'd drive around um, showing off to everybody, living like a king, and stockpiling so many guns that he could equip a small army. When the town's original inhabitants objected to all the weird stuff going down, Osho's second in command Sheila moved in aggressively to rig elections and eliminate all opposition by any means necessary. They drove around the country collecting homeless people to bring back to their cult compound to illegally increase the votes on their side. And an outbreak of salmonella swept across the town, making many near fatally sick, which the cult members, of course, caused. They purposely poisoned a whole town, intending to kill as many as possible. And all this while telling the media that it was a case of evil conservatives discriminating and oppressing a minority. Sheila was busy wiretapping every single house, plotting to bomb the courthouse to assassinate a U.S. attorney lawfully in opposition to them, and even tried to assassinate Osho's doctor. Sheila became drunk on power and readied the cult for a crazy conflict, but this isn't all Sheila, this is under the direct orders of Osho, so don't forget that. And they were a pretty big threat because they were better armed than all of the Oregon police combined, thanks to their massive horde of firearms. There's some people who were part of this cult that till this day claim victimhood after its dissolution. But considering all the culty power domination, willful harm to others, corruption, and just all around criminal behavior of the cults, very few people are inclined to believe them. They literally poisoned an entire town without any regard to deaths or any harm that they may cause. And I mean, it did all eventually lead to the very well-deserved collapse of the commune. 
It's also just a ridiculous act of violating the separation of church and state in America, to which granted the prominent people of the cult were from India as well as the majority of the cult, but it's just not a thing we do here. I've seen people posting quotes of memes of Osho on social media, and I usually ask, do you know anything about that guy behind that meme? And most of the time they're totally oblivious that they're sharing quotes from a pretty selfish and corrupt and messed up cult leader. Anyway, though Osho's cult tried to weaponize fake persecution against their enemies in a bid for total domination of the area, in Cairo, Illinois, we're moving on to a creepy American town with a true history of oppression. Oddly enough though, they pronounce Cairo as Cairo, C-A-Y-R-O, and not Cairo as in the Egyptian city, which is annoying to me for some reason, because it's still spelled like the Egyptian Cairo. But Cairo, Illinois is basically a modern ghost town. I mean, most people think ghost towns are from the 1800s in America and from the push west and whatnot, but there's actually a decent amount of semi-modern ghost towns all across the US. And Cairo is one such ghost town that was uh, at one time pretty wealthy for the most part and seemed like it had a prosperous future. But civil unrest would contribute to a slow but steady economic downturn, eventually leading to the town being all but abandoned. Cairo was pretty small early on and um, like around the Civil War, or I mean during the Civil War, it only had around 2,000 residents. But since Cairo was basically on the dividing lines between factions, the war drastically altered its fate. During the war, 12,000 Union soldiers stayed there and it became a critical strategic position in the war, which was what gave the town its initial boost leading to its future prosperity. Though the exact numbers are unclear, it's uh, thought that many thousands of runaway slaves were sent there by the Union, and around 3,000 continued to live there after the war ended. And these people were oppressed horribly. The fight for equality would be a defining factor that never left Cairo and would lead to its inevitable end. In the 1920s, people of Cairo would have probably laughed at just the mere thought that the town was on decline. Nobody could have guessed that it would be dead within a century. Its location was perfect for making it a booming transit hub. However, that was back when boats on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers and trains were the primary way that people got around. When cars became a thing, it took a bit for people to realize the town's future was not as stable as they thought. And when the Great Depression kicked in, the town's days were numbered. On top of this, racial tension in the town had always been pretty severe from the Civil War all the way up to the 1960s, and racial violence had pretty much haunted the town since its inception concerning this. So, with the economic downturn and civil unrest, it made Cairo not the highest priority for new people to move to, or to stick around if they already lived there for that matter. The town's prejudice and inability to adapt inexorably led to the inhabitants moving away over time. Nowadays, the town is a decaying skeleton that reminds anyone of, or who knows movies, reminds them of like uh, post-apocalyptic landscapes, wastelands. It's a pretty creepy place with just as much of a sinister vibe. Many paranormal enthusiasts claim the history of violence that plagued Cairo has left a permanent psychic imprint and that the area itself is alive with malevolent energy. It's interesting and ironically appealing how one of the most popular places in Illinois has fallen so far. However, another creepy aspect of this town is that even though it's pretty much empty, there's still a population of around 2,000 that live there, and many of that number homeless. But most of the town is abandoned and decaying, with few habitable areas of upkeep giving the town some pretty nightmarish visuals. You can go from a populated area right into collapsed ruins of semi-modern buildings at only a moment's notice. It's pretty jarring, at least according to accounts, and many places in the town have tales of high strangeness. With all the injustice, unlawful lynchings, and other murders in abundance, the town allegedly has a legion of lost souls haunting its godforsaken streets. Phantom faces are reported looking out from within darkness of crumbling abandoned buildings. 
Shadow figures are reportedly stalking around every corner, and this town is just depressing as hell, but it also has some historically important locations, such as the Magnolia Manor. In 1869, the wealthy Gallagher's family built a mansion and they'd call it Magnolia Manor. General Grant stayed here when he was in charge of the troops stationed in Cairo during the Civil War, and the young girl has been seen haunting the mansion. Grant's wife once had a vision of him on the battlefield while he stayed at the mansion, to which was confirmed by Grant himself to be what was actually occurring at the time, which is pretty weird for a president to do. I did have kind of a difficult time researching the mansion, but allegedly there was a lot of death, suffering, and pain that transpired there, but I really couldn't find any evidence to back that up. Still kind of a creepy place though, so I figured I'd throw it in there. Pierre Lockleed is the one given credit for discovering and establishing the area. He first came into the territory that would become Illinois in a location named Defiance State Park. This area reportedly has anomalous sounds everyone who's heard them can't explain in any logical way, whether overlapping dimensions, spirits, or just rivers. This eerie sound has unnerved all who've heard it. Paranormal investigators have also recorded disturbing EVPs and other unnerving phenomena at the location. However, Cairo's most well-known haunted location is the Gem Theater. Initially constructed in 1910 and officially closed in 1978, the theater is a ruin of its former self, but the small population living in Cairo still has a show, just not the show that they want. People who get too close to the entrance say that they hear laughter and noises like people are inside, as if on a typical night in the theater's heyday, but obviously nobody's in there. Paranormal investigators have labeled this case as a residual haunting, with no paranormal activity really beyond what I just stated, but there are other accounts, especially of shadow people and figures in the windows. When I saw images of it, the windows are all boarded up, but that's what it said. And then there's also a haunted hospital and a plethora of other dark stories about Cairo. It has a legacy of hate and violence with enough ghost stories to fill volumes of books. And Cairo is easily one of the most visually disturbing modern ghost towns in America. listening to cryptic chronicles the show is sponsored by blueberry and if you're interested in starting your own podcast use our link we'll even give your podcast a shout out go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the blueberry link on the homepage. by doing so you'll be helping the show blueberry is optimized for itunes as well as all podcast hubs you won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees in fact you won't have to leave your own website you'll have your own rss feed and no third-party sites Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. For most of all, thanks for Next up is a particularly interesting and mysterious town of Damascus, Oregon, established in 1851. 
Damascus only has a population of around 10,000 and is pretty typical of a quiet mountain town. Other than its bizarre Egyptian-style temple in the woods, that is. Known as the Temple of Oculus Anubis, this mysterious location has drawn a lot of speculation and confusion while also being the creepiest location in all of Oregon to some people. The Temple of Oculus Anubis has been talked about for some time in the corners of the internet that focused on strange mysteries and the like, but the temple would blow up in internet fame and public fascination thanks to Reddit. A Redditor created a pretty well-known thread and linked it to clandestine forces, MKUltra, mind control, and some serious high strangeness that was being hidden from the public in this esoteric Egyptian temple. The poster said that when they drove close to the site, their radio would stop working and glitch out, as well as other electronics just not functioning properly. The Redditor claimed that white vans were parked throughout the area and that the CIA had a presence there. Shortly after the Redditor investigated the temple, she started getting stalked by a creepy operative-looking man that utilized a white van. It's analogous to the classic Men in Black accounts, and she'd, uh, she'd see these creepy lurkers even come into her front door. Weird, right? And it didn't take long for people to start to take notice of her story. It was all creepily fascinating and exciting and drew in a big crowd of interest. And though while many enjoyed the story but found it hard to believe, there seemed to be a lot of half-truths in it. Because a lot of the stuff that was talked about in the thread turned out to be true. Not all of it, but a lot of it could be backed up. Obviously, a lot was being played up for scares concerning where she was posting. However, when more and more people actually found evidence to support the story, well, let's just say... Many inquisitive souls needed to find out more about this mysterious location. And it turns out that right when you approach the area, things get weird really quick. As you approach the property, the first thing you're going to see is a large gate. At the Ebony Arched Gate, many solar symbols greet the viewer immediately. There's a circular continuation of the gate's design above the main arch of the gate with a lion and a dragon looking at a golden lion head crest facing the viewer with ebon masonry designed like a crown right above it. And at the right and left base of the gate are two more lions, each with their paws on a globe. The lion is an obvious solar symbol, and the dragon is a solar symbol as well, so right off the bat we got some serious ancient Egyptian spirituality going down in the architecture. But wait, there's more. Within the gate is a large 40-foot statue of the goddess Sekhmet, holding an Ankh in her right hand, the Egyptian symbol of eternal life, who was the daughter of the sun god Ra and the manifestation of the god's vengeance. And she's also a vampire god in some lore. The lion-headed goddess is one of the oldest and most important deities to the Egyptians. Her very name originates from the Egyptian word for power. She's the goddess of war, fire, dance, physicians, plague, and healing, and is the icing on the cake for all these powerful solar symbols. The property that the temple is located is vast, with well-crafted stone paths that descend up and down through the woods like serpents. When it gets too steep, cobblestone steps are there, and all around it's all pretty symmetrical and elegant in design. Many white pillars can be seen forming a circle in the woods, and other statues as well. There are fountains of stone with steps seeming to go underwater to nowhere. A strange tomb-like entrance with slabs of stone that appear like you can open and close, but no one knows what's behind them. Yet. Flat, smooth cement fills areas with chest-high stone walls hugging the perimeter with the woods beyond. And throughout the entire property, these snake-like paths of stone steps escalating and descending throughout the entire temple. I, um... A couple trails lead to circular plateaus, with one having a bench that looks like an enormous piece of a lower jawbone with teeth and everything, which is pretty cool. There are more white pillars to the right and left of stairs that lead to a circular area ringed with more white pillars that's like a ritual-type area at the far end, with a flat surface at arm's reach that looks like you could place a book and candles and stuff like that on it. It's like an altar, which wouldn't look out of place in the Cthulhu mythos. And this elegant ebony 
masonry is present all throughout the property in one form or another, but usually just in short walls. There are also two twin ebony pyramids within, though they're kind of miniatures, not full-on pyramids, should just clarify, and all parts of the temple are crafted in the highest quality and skill, which leads to the question, why? Who and what the hell could be the purpose of building an Egyptian temple in the woods outside a small town in Oregon? There's a lot of rumors and theories about this creepy place, with one in particular considered the most credible, but the weirdest and most interesting concerns a UFO cult. We'll get to that. The first theory I'll talk about is that allegedly an eye doctor, Dean Elton Neal, and his autistic son created the temple by financing it from an incomplete insurance scam because Dr. Neal had a stroke and died. However, his wife lived on and took over, I guess. The son being autistic probably didn't really have a whole lot to do with the insurance fraud scheme. And if this theory is true, he's the one who actually owns the property. Another theory is that the owners are a wealthy family of art collectors who had a passion for travel, with Egypt being among their favorite places to visit. Around 1971, this family moved to Oregon to build the property, though others believe it was built in 2009. This theory pretty much just goes with the mundane view that they collected all these Egyptian artifacts and put them on their property for fun, like a hobby or something. And... <laughs> that they're just basically rich people doing rich people stuff. Supposedly, it's pretty much confirmed that the original creator of the temple has since died, but his widow still lives on the property, which actually this lady has been talked to and even videotaped. She said in the past that she has plans for the temple, but those plans remain enigmatic and never elaborated upon. I'll get back to her in a bit. Her name is Sharon. Because of course, we also need to have our theories about satanic stuff going on here, right? With mysterious cults and cosmic horror-esque rituals taking place at the temple by clandestine secret societies with mysterious and dark agendas. One source has said that the people who lived there were a death cult and had all committed suicide. But the people claiming these things also called the Sekhmet statue Anubis. So they don't even have their basics down, which uh, made me lose interest from their lack of credibility. But the cult theme is a common theory concerning the temple and any people associated with it. On Reddit, you'll see people saying that it allegedly has links to the Illuminati and is a meeting place for the elite to perform heinous rituals. Others claim that it is a hub of Freemasons that plan ways to dominate global affairs there. But some also go so far as to claim that the location is literally a gateway to hell itself. However, the evidence of how or when the temple originated is kind of murky. And these cult theories only increased when permits were found that authorized tunnels to be constructed under the property's surface. But not just tunnels, heated underground tunnels were approved. So that means that the it's meant to have people going through there even during the winter or at any time of the year. So underneath the temple Oculus Anubis, there are also secret tunnels. To quote the voucher itself, attached additional living space through heated underground tunnel. Yeah, that's just as intriguing and weird as it sounds. One woman has claimed to find an entrance to these tunnels while illegally exploring the site and said that they were white and smooth, and that she heard a bunch of people talking through a room as she got close. But once she realized that it was people talking, she took off as fast as possible so that she wouldn't get caught or, you know, murdered or something. One of these permits cost over a million dollars, and another a hundred thousand. So, <laughs> there were some pretty heavy hitters behind the creation of this place. But to get even weirder, these receipts have been linked to a supply company, linked to a website that may or may not be a famous UFO cult. 
According to their website, Evansgate.com, the company behind the temple's creation revolves around other professional equipment and supplies, merchant, wholesalers, industry. To which I have no idea what any of that means. Although, if you remember, there's a pretty famous UFO cult which may remind you of the term Heaven's Gate. And when I looked at the website that was connected through the receipts and whatnot, guess what popped up? The Heaven's Gate religious group was founded in 1974 by Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite. The group gathered a decent amount of following and their spiritual beliefs revolved around an amalgamation of Christian, Millenarianism, New Age, and UFOlogy all mixed into the same thing. The only thing remotely linked to Egyptian spirituality in there would be maybe like some specific New Age beliefs like the Law of One or Raw type stuff, hence a possible reason for all the sun symbolism. The logo of Heaven's Gate also looks like an Ankh, which is objectively an Egyptian symbol. Other than that though, it was really hard for me to find a connection. I tried really hard to find a connection. I really wanted to make an, I really wanted to find something, but though the evidence is spotty, let's just humor it. Heaven's Gate believe they can, or I should say believed, that they can transcend normal humanity and ascend to heaven in their next evolutionary state as an immortal extraterrestrial being. Originally, the group believed they could do this while alive, but after the death of one of their founders in 1985, they thought that they had to die in order for their spirits to be picked up by a UFO and transferred to new spiritual bodies. And in 1997, 39 bodies of its members, as well as Applewhite, its other founder, all participated in a mass suicide, coinciding with Haley's Comet becoming visually seen in the night sky. This was front page news and in the media nonstop for a long time. So unless you're Generation Z, Heaven's Gate should definitely ring a bell even if it's just subconscious. The cult believed that Earth had been corrupted by evil aliens named Luciferians that claimed to be gods or God with a capital G. And not only could space travel, but could time travel. They had longer lifespans and telepathic abilities. These Luciferians were both reptilian and mammalian. And this version of reality is basically just a holographic classroom. And the hologram is close to being rebooted. They taught that literally all religions on Earth had been corrupted by these Luciferians, and the only way to escape was to transcend. They believed that Earth was seeded with life by ancient aliens, and that they'd return to pick up worthy humans to become crews of their UFOs. But only the chosen were worthy. The rest would just spiritually haunt the corrupted world, their spirits unable to leave. Digging into this stuff was pretty entertaining. I scoured their very much still working website and went through all their curriculum and written works for about an hour to try and find connections to Egyptian religion, specifically sun symbolism stuff, but found very little other than the Heaven's Gate logo resembling an Ankh, like I've already said. Um, references to a light body, which the Egyptians totally believed in too, and a reference to Chief of Chiefs which occult secret societies have a similar name for their high-up leaders, the Secret Chiefs. And yeah, like I said, all in all, I found very little connecting Heaven's Gate to the Egyptian religion. But then again, these secret societies never have their real doctrines out in the open or accessible by outsiders, so it doesn't mean there isn't more of a connection, I just can't access it. And the truth is... Well, I guess everybody who knows the truth is pretty much dead. Not everybody, but most. If anything, they have a lot of Christian-type rhetoric in their material, such as Kingdom of Heaven, constantly referenced, and even a version of Jesus that travels through space. Jesus is definitely a sun symbol in and of himself and is massively linked to light and stuff like that symbolically, but yet again, no connection to Egyptian stuff in any obvious objective way. And even though this connection of the Oculus Temple of Anubis connection to Heaven's Gate is kind of iffy, the receipts that connect to them is it's 
not BS. I mean, I guess somebody could have photoshopped it, but it's, I do find it the most interesting out of all the theories. There seem to be references to tarot cards in some way too, but that's harder to fit together coherently. But Heaven's Gate were definitely into some occult stuff and lots of new age stuff, but I just don't have any idea where that connection is to be honest. What's also incredibly strange is their website, heavensgate.com, is still up and running 24 years after the group supposedly ended. The website is clunky and very obviously heavily dated in design, like it's got some really hardcore 90s vibes on it without being, I mean it hasn't been updated since the last one right before the group's passing. That's like the last message or whatever on it with new content. It's fully functional though, and it's widgets and everything work perfect. And as someone who has made websites, there is someone keeping that thing up and running. Without consistent maintenance, websites don't last long. And um, this fact led me to look a little bit deeper, and I found out that two members of the group were actually chosen to take care of the website, and they weren't allowed to transcend like everybody else. And all these years later, these two guys are still keeping this website going. Well, no, actually, there were other survivors. I think 19. Um, but they had already left the group prior. So they weren't like a part of Heaven's Gate during the Transcendence. Anyway, all in all, who knows what the hell is going on with Heaven's Gate. Officially, the most mainstream theory takes us back to the woman I mentioned earlier, Sharon. This coincides with the fraud theory, like I stated earlier, concerning Dr. Neil, but could still have connections to Heaven's Gate nonetheless. However, the alleged owner's daughter-in-law, Lydia, also claims to own the home and says Sharon is a tenant. And I actually came across three people claiming to own the property, including a mysterious man named Anthony who was said to be the autistic son of Dr. Neil that helped him commit fraud against the government to get millions of dollars and build the temple. If you're wondering why I'm leaving out last names or don't say the first and last names together, but give the info altogether anyway that you'll have to put together yourself, it's because I don't want to accidentally dox anyone. There's actually people when you're researching this that are very real and Sharon's one of them. Um... But a woman who interviewed Sharon stated that she said she'd owned the property since 1971. So as you can see, there are a lot of contradictions concerning the temple since others say it was built in 2009. The internet still can't agree on what theory to go with. However, I absolutely prefer the Heaven's Gate one. But then again, there's always those people who say, that's been debunked, we figured that out. Type, 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 lol, you so stupid. But that's really not the case. Like this uh, from Reddit I found, someone who said that they've cracked the case. Quote, Yeah, actually cracked the case yesterday. Just some new age spiritualists that were using a church to dodge taxes. The complex is actually just a large botanical garden with caves that work like greenhouses. This thread is pretty popular but lacked a lot concerning credibility. I assume the poster is referring to the Heaven's Gate connection because there's, I mean, what else is he talking about? That's literally the only actual group that's ever been connected with any evidence. But I'm not sure because the thread also talks about stuff concerning the temple that is just not true. So whenever you come across anyone saying that this is debunked, just uh, take that grain of salt and realize that people got to feed their egos and that these people are wrong. I thought I'd quote it just because it was so popular and I'm always amused by people who think that they figured things out in absolutes that are uh, above their pay grade or, and that sounds arrogant. Maybe like, um, there's a lot of nuance and mysteries and stuff we don't know. Anyway, I'm getting kind of lost in the woods. But there are tons of amazingly interesting Reddit threads on the topic, though. I don't want to get bogged down in those. It's a pretty deep rabbit hole, and there's just too much content to summarize and not get confusing. And I'm going to try and keep this episode within an hour. Cross your fingers. However, it's not only the Oculus itself that is creepy. 
But there's a weird and creepy stuff about the neighbors all around the temple as well. Allegedly, they all have the same last name, Neil, which is definitely not normal. I looked up the two survivors who were ordered to continue the duties for Heaven's Gate after the rest performed the, uh, you know, and their last names are not Neil, which I was very disappointed by. But also, I researched everyone with a connection to the group, but couldn't find anyone with the last name Neil either, which also was disappointing. I mean, people get their name changed every day, who knows, and I could have missed something. Then again, the whole everyone is named Neil thing too could be bogus because I watched some footage of the neighbors being interviewed about the temple, and there didn't seem to be any connection. In fact, they seemed very annoyed and not cool with the temple or the people who built it at all. And they were even more annoyed at the people who show up randomly to gawk at it and get up in their neighborhood and personal space and stuff like that. So there's a lot about the temple Oculus Anubis that makes me scratch my head. It's still pretty cryptic despite all my research and get this, Google Earth shows extremely little of the site almost like it's intentionally blocked somehow. Go check it out. I also don't really get the name looking at it with surface knowledge. It has a bunch of solar symbolism there and the only God represented that I saw that uh, people have discovered, because there could be more, the only God represented is Sekhmet. There is no sign or image, no symbolism representing the God Anubis anywhere and it's named after Anubis. Solar symbols are not associated with Anubis whatsoever. If anything, the place should be called the Temple of Oculus Ra. That would make sense. Or the Temple of Oculus Sekhmet, something like that. I mean, the more Anubis-themed stuff could be underground in the tunnels, to which that would make sense since he's Chthonic, an underworld deity who an original Egyptian his name is actually not Anubis, it's Anpu. Anubis is his Greek name from translation. Sadly, there is absolutely no visitors allowed at the Temple of Oculus Anubis, and trespassers can expect some pretty aggressive security if they try to investigate over the fence um, on the site on their own. Security cameras are everywhere, including in the trees, and literally everyone in the area, including the people who live there, are always annoyed by anyone prying around or making a nuisance of themselves. The Illuminati do not like to be interrupted. Come on, guys. Records say the property has a $260,000 annual revenue. So, whoever does actually own the temple is making a pretty decent amount of money one way or another. There are three known employees located at the temple, pretty much at all times, allegedly, but I could find no evidence to support that. There are too many accounts of security from people who have trespassed there to rule it out, though, so don't go checking it out. Unless you talk to Sharon, I guess. It is private property, so whoever owns it does not need to explain it to anyone whether it is Sharon, Lydia, or any, any of the owners, possible owners. But luckily, before they really cracked down on the security, there were a ton of explorers. So if you go Google it and look at images, you're going to see a whole bunch of awesome stuff. Lots of pictures of it. Also, you're going to have to keep your eyes out for devil worshippers and, you know, like cultists, all the good stuff. But it's a pretty big and impressive and beautiful architecturally designed site with very heavy occult themes and design. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed these creepy American towns, listener. 
Let me know what you think and tell me American towns I should cover in the future or if I should spread it out more. There really is no shortage of creepy places to dive into and I find it really entertaining to research. We could get more specific like creepy hospitals or asylums to even creepy cities with sordid pasts or we could get even more gritty and maybe do some serial killer themed places. So let me know what you think and I'll make it happen. There are still plenty more creepy towns to cover as well. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and basically all podcast hosts. If you can, listener, please make sure to like, comment, or review wherever you hear this content. The interaction makes the algorithms like the episode, so we'll spread and help grow the show. Though the show is free to listen to, the cost and time to produce it is substantial. By pleasing the gods of the algorithm, you are doing more than your part in support. And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles and you want to interact with me directly and guide the direction of the show and the topics that we cover, then support the show on Patreon or PayPal. For just a dollar, you can unlock full uncensored shows with no ads or anything like that be able to listen to episodes months before they're available to the public. We'll get access to some exclusive podcast episodes only for supporters. And you can come join the Discord channel, which I am most active on out of basically anything else, at least at the time of this recording. Just go to crypticchronicles.com at the top, click on the Chronicler's Vault. It's a link to Patreon, so you'll be good to go. really means a lot, and thank you for keeping the lights on at Cryptic Chronicles. As always, I'd like to thank my current patrons, MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, AlienX, Beware the Q, Lorna Grubb, Paul, Linda Gonzalez, Angela Delaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, Michael Worrell, Jimmy Woods, and our newest patrons, Johnny Wick, as well as Matt Poland. Thanks for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the most self-delusion, eviscerating philosophers once said, the irony of the process of thought control, the more energy you put into trying to control your ideas and what you think about, the more your ideas end up controlling you.